0: Deuteronomy um, chapter 7 verse 6 to 11 for you are people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured position the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to you as that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. From the power of Pharaoh king of Egypt, know therefore that the Lord, your God, is God. He is the faithful God keeping his confidence of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and the laws I give you today. Second Bible readings from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. and a rock that makes him fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special position, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
1: Well good afternoon, my name is John Forsyth, the vicar here at St Jude's and a very warm welcome to you if this is your first time here. We're delighted that you can be here and guess what, you've made it to the Promised Land, not St Jude's, the end of our sermon series in Deuteronomy for this year. Although we will pick up Deuteronomy next year, so it's the end of season one and you'll have to wait till next season to get to season two. Now of course the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gives to God's people as they're about to enter the promised land. A series of sermons that reminds them of how they got there, of who they are, of how God has been gracious and loving towards them. And the big picture of Deuteronomy is this. How do you live in light of the sovereign grace of God? How do you as God's people live in the light of of the sovereign grace of God. That is the big picture of Deuteronomy. Or, In the words of the book itself, how do we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves? Well, chapter 7 continues this theme with Moses speaking to the people. And chapter 7 is a passage, I think, of extraordinary comfort. And at the the same time, controversy. So if if you're in the mood for some controversy, Deuteronomy 7. If you're in the mood for some comfort, Deuteronomy 7. In other words, it's not boring. It's exciting. It's wonderful. Uh, The reason it it is often seen as controversial or difficult is it addresses head-on this idea of the doctrine of election. The idea that you are a Christian, you are a follower of God, not because you first chose God, but because he first chose you. Not because you first chose him, but he first chose you. Now this, of course, raises all kinds of questions. I can see your very intelligent brains busy whirring away as you look at me. What does it mean that God chose me? Why did he choose me and not someone else? Is this fair? And why doesn't God just choose everybody, right? These are all excellent questions that I've heard you ask rhetorically. And we'll wrestle with those questions together. It's a great text for us to do it because what Deuteronomy does is help us how to struggle with these genuine questions wisely and smartly with the reality that we are chosen by grace? How do we wrestle with these big questions? What do they mean for us as God's people? And what I want to say is this passage is really helpful because it points us in three clear ways in which being chosen by grace shapes who we are. And we'll see that, that it gives us a community, it leads us to humility, and it gives us security. So community humility, and security. So let's look at those one after the other. The first thing is, the fact that we are chosen by grace leads to community. Now I would argue actually that chapter 7 verse 6 of Deuteronomy is actually one of the most astounding verses in Scripture. Have a look with me. For you are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Let me say that again. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people. You are his treasured possession. Right now, they are words that that speak deep to our hearts. You are God's—not just someone He knows, not just a person He's created, but a treasured possession. And notice, this is not a promise that you will become these things as long as you obey the rules. It's a declaration of what is. You are. A people not you will become a people or in the future you will become a people no you are a people you are his treasure possession right now it's a current reality these are the words that Moses speaks you are a holy people And there's the same language in the New Testament for Christians, for followers of Jesus. We we read 1 Peter 2. You can see Peter is totally riffing on Moses, right? If you were marking an essay written by 1 Peter, you'd say, plagiarism alert, check your sources. But he's deliberately doing this. He's invoking this passage. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Peter emphasises the fact that that, promise made, that, that, sorry, that statement made through Moses is the same statement made to us as followers of Jesus. This means that when you become a Christian, not only do you experience the beautiful grace of having the perfect relationship with your Creator and Redeemer, but you also enter into a community of God's people. You are a people, his people, not just person, people. When I was a a minister a few years ago at another church, there was a man at that church who would like to come to church early because it was quiet and there were no other people. Now it wasn't just because he was an introvert, I can understand introverts, so nothing against introverts. This was the idea that he came to church because he really liked drawing near to God, but he found other people quite distracting and annoying to his experience of being with God. People laughing, perhaps that's your experience. I apologise on behalf of us extroverts if that's your experience. But here's the, here's the theological truth, you can't escape the other people. And so I sat with him and said, actually, you're actually missing out on half of church. Yes, church being, it is with God, absolutely. But it's not by yourself and God, it is God and his people. So I'm sorry, introverts, you're going to have to suck it up. Us extroverts will be nice to you. But we are a people, this is the great thing, it's a community. Church means to gather, to bring together. And notice that we are a community that is holy, that it's holy to the Lord your God. Now, that word holy, it sounds like a religious term, and there is certainly a religious element to that term. But at its core, what it means is, to be holy means to be set apart for a special purpose. Holy to God means set apart for God's special purpose. Now, you know when someone comes around to your house, just an average average Joe, right, you might get out the paper plates or just maybe the ordinary crockery. But when, say, someone important, let's just call, call him the vicar, turns up, you get out the good china, right, the good plates, the stuff that grandma bought for you that you never, ever use. That's the holy crockery and cutlery, special purpose. And, and we're being taught here that we are like that. We're not the everyday one. You are that precious, gold-plated, set-apart-for-a-special-purpose people. And notice too, that means therefore that if we're holy, therefore we are different to the society around us. We are not a mirror that reflects back our culture's values. We are to be distinct. That's what holiness means, set apart. And our community, by the way, it's not defined by race. It's not defined by age, it's not defined by income, it's not defined by gender, it's not defined by education, it's not defined by ability, it's not defined by language. These are all the things that define communities, right? You kind of belong to a community for one of these these reasons. Now it's clear that we are a holy people because we belong to God. That is what makes us holy. And that is expressed in our behaviour to each other and our behaviour to God, the way we interact, the way we do life together as a community. Now here in Melbourne, the predominant culture, although not the only culture, it's important to note because we are multicultural, but the predominant culture of Melbourne is individualistic Western. That's its general vibe. Now once again, there are variations, but that's the general vibe. And that promotes the self as the centre, the power to get what you want for yourself—it's a bit of survival of the fittest. Work hard, get your job, work for you. You do you. But as God's people, we're called to actually be very countercultural—to speak of sacrifice and service and care of others. And that means if we are to truly live out the fact that we are God's holy people, his treasured possession, we actually are radically different in the way we use the big three things that mark out your culture. How you look at sex, how you look at money, and how you look at power. Our culture says when it comes to sex, well, that's used for personal, individual fulfillment and expression. As long as you have consent, you can do what you want. The Bible calls God's people to see sex very differently. It is other person focused. It is for building families and communities, not just consent, but something even deeper. It's about covenant, marriage. Our culture says when it comes to money, that's your cash. You've worked hard for it. It'll give you security, build up your nest egg, build up your portfolio of your property. Depend upon it for your future. Spend it on on what you want. Build your dreams and then buy your dreams. That's what you do with money. But to be God's holy people, we use our money instead with grace and generosity. We recognize that it's actually a gift from God. And it's not what gives us security, but it's actually used to give away and care for others and to love others. We see, particularly in the Scriptures, a call to love those who are poor with our money. And in fact, if you read on through Deuteronomy, you'll see that there are these laws, particularly in place for the poor, for them to be looked after. There's these gleaning laws that you don't take everything. No, no, you use what you have in the service of others. Radically different worldview, because we're holy. When it comes to power, uh, you should use your power or I like the trendy word, if you're an influencer, right? Hip with the kids. Uh, influencers promote themselves, right? They are the product. You've got to get ahead, you've got to have an image, you've got to craft it, you, then you can sell stuff. Interestingly, I think there's an increasing awareness of the problems of power-based relationships culturally. Uh, Our kind of cultural, uh, our society's goal is kind of if we get the power relationships equal, then everything will work out. But the Bible says something far more radical. It says if we are to be a holy people, it's not just about redeeming power structures, it's actually about redeeming power itself. And that you don't use it to serve yourself at all, but you use it to serve other people. To be a servant leader is the call for God's people. Not to promote yourself, not to serve yourself, but to use the gifts and abilities and power you have in the service of other people is a radically different way of seeing power. And can I say there's actually an incredible beauty and attractiveness about a community that actually lives this out. People say, wow, here are different races, with different amounts of money all coming together sharing and loving where power is used to serve and not oppress it's a very attractive picture Uh, one of my friends uh, has uh, a daughter who's a young single woman she's 24 years old Uh, she likes to go out and party Um, she's not a Christian in fact she said she finds Christians boring and so my friend asked her and said okay you're a young woman Young single woman, when you go out partying with your mates, do you feel safer if you go to a Christian's place or to a non-Christian's place for the party? Where do you feel safer? And there was a pause. Christian. Here's a woman who realizes, in spite of it being boring, it's actually a much safer place for her to be as a single 24-year-old woman because she'll be respected. See, the great thing about holiness is it's not just reducible to the individual. Yes, you have a responsibility to work on your holiness. But it's also fundamentally a group experience, a community experience. I've often said that Christianity is a team sport, not an individual sport, not just you and God. It's you encouraging your brothers and sisters as they encourage you to be a community of grace and mercy and love. It's a family. As Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five. by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the call. Being chosen by grace leads to being a community that is holy and set apart for the service of God. Well, second, we see from this text that sovereign grace, being chosen by grace, leads to humility. Because it's a dainty here, isn't it? If, if you genuinely believe that you were chosen by God, it's very easy just to slide into arrogance, right? Hey, check it out. God chose me. I've got God on my side. I'm kind of a big deal, right? This is, this is a big thing. But actually, we see God's grace completely undercut any, any form of arrogance or superiority. Now, when I was in primary school, uh, we used to do this thing at lunchtime where uh, we'd want to go play cricket or we want to play football at lunchtime, and we'd have two captains, two kids to be picked as captains, and then everybody else would line up against a wall. And the two captains would take it in turns, picking who they wanted on their team. Anyone else do this at their school? Were you. Everyone's nodding, yeah, yeah. The competitive people are like, yeah, <laughs> I was the captain. I am the captain now, that's right. Uh, and you, there was a rule, right? You either had to pick your best friend, right, uh, or the person who was good at the sport. They were, they were really your only options. And then you'd work your way through... And he'd be stuck at the end with two people who didn't know what they were doing. And you, if you were on the wall, the one thing you didn't want to do was get picked last, right? It was so embarrassing that not just one person, but two people thought you were the least competent person. The biggest loser. Every every you know, So he was like, it's a big deal getting picked last. It means you're terrible at it. Now look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all people. If you were to line up the nations at this time on a wall to say, let's play most powerful nation so we can play some cricket or go to war or form an empire or be a great great country, Guess who's getting picked last each and every time? You were the fewest of the peoples. In other words, they're actually not impressive. And it's a reminder too that we are actually not that impressive. God didn't pick you because you were great. In fact, we are the fewest. We are the ones who are picked last. See, verse 7 so clearly teaches us that it is about grace and not greatness that you have entered God's kingdom. God does not say, I chose you because you are special. That's what your grandparents say to you, right? That's the job of grandparents. Grandparents don't see original sin, it's one of their blind things, right? And the grandparents will agree with me, their grandchildren are perfect. Not so with God. He says, no, 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 I didn't choose you because you're special. He says, you're special because I chose you. You see how that, that is so deeply humbling. There's no, there's no place for pride. There is nothing special about you or me that God says, oh, I can't wait to get John on my team. Then you watch the kingdom of God fly at this point. Now, you might say at this, point, uh, at this point, look, isn't this deeply unfair? This is one of the big challenges, of course, with the doctrine of election. Why doesn't God then just choose everybody, right? It seems unfair that, that He just chooses some people and doesn't choose other people. That's a big challenge. But there's a bigger challenge if you deny the doctrine of election. Let me explain. Let me say someone asks you the question, uh, why are you a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, and a colleague, a dear friend at work is not? You can answer that question, well, um, uh, I'm I'm a Christian because I've accepted Jesus into my life, right? The kind of Christian summary statement. And then I could push you a bit harder and say, well, why did you accept Jesus into your heart and not your friend at work? oh, I was willing to see Jesus as Lord and recognise my sin. But then I can ask the next question. Well, why were you willing to recognise Jesus as Lord and your own sinfulness and not your friend at work? You can see how you can keep asking that question and asking that question, and ultimately you've got to come down to this. Either there was something about you that got it right, or it was grace. The only reason you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, is grace. It's not because you were morally a little bit better or biblically a little bit smarter. Because you've got to pick something. Is there something about you that meant you got it before your friend at work did? Or it is God's grace. You've got to pick one of those two things. So why doesn't God choose this person or that person? Well, Paul actually answers this question for us uh, in Romans 9. He says in Romans 9 verse 14, in answer to this question, what then shall we say is God unjust? Good question. Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on a human's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And Paul will go on to explain the story of the Exodus from chapter 33. And it's so, it's so relevant, right, because it then goes into the context of Moses going up uh, the mountain. Uh, there's the Ten Commandments. He comes down, he finds that Israel have built, like they can't even last just for this short period of time without doing something wrong. They're now worshipping a golden calf. That's how quickly things have gone south. In other words, at this point, none of them deserve mercy. They haven't encountered the living God. He's gone up the mountain and they've, they've turned their back on God, every single one of them. And this is the key point. There is no neutral ground from where God picks people from. The scriptures tell us that all of us deserve God's full judgment. No one actually deserves God's mercy. But God in his mercy will save all those he calls to himself. And God is the only one who can save and God is the only one who can choose who his people are. And one of the hard things I think we find hard to wrestle with is we're not the center. God is at the center. The ultimate goal of God's saving purpose is actually not us. It's his glory. It's his glory. We are chosen by grace. And that can leave us only in a place of humility. Well, thirdly, we see here in this text, that being chosen by grace leads to security. Now, the very fact that we are saved not because we've earned it uh, is the fact, basically, that God has redeemed you because he loves you. And this means that you and I actually have astonishing security. In other words, God loves you because God loves you. In other words, it's not about you, it's actually about him. He loves you because he loves you. And there's nowhere else where you get that love from than from God. I, my wife and I celebrated our 27 years of, of marriage and bought a nice card for each other and we wrote in, I love you. I'm not happy to share this, one. Right? I, I won't share everything, but I, I love you. And then listed all these amazing things about my wife. And she's amazing, right? She is amazing. She puts up with me, which is Already amazing, right? Uh, Here are the reasons why I love her. Here are the reasons. All about her. Beautiful, amazing, patient, kind, puts up with me. They're all about her. But God says, this is why I love you, comma, it's because I love you. There's nothing about us that's intrinsically lovable. You, You don't get that kind of love from anyone else. Nothing you've done can make God love you less. And nothing you can do can make God love you more. That's the picture of unconditional love. There aren't any conditions. Do you know when you have a contract that says, or you tick that box which says, please read the conditions, and it's like 80 pages of like three-point font. And we never read it, right? We always say, yes, I'll read the terms and conditions. There are no terms and conditions. I love you. That is an astonishing, secure thing to know. Look at verse eight. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's because what? You are worth it? because he loved you. And that little word, redeem there it means to be ransomed by a gift. The gift is exchanged for your life. Only God can say to you, I love you because I love you. And because I love you, I have rescued you. And because I have rescued you, you are special and my treasured possession. And if the God of the universe says that to you, That is something that you can build your life on. Sovereign grace is eternally secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In Romans 8, Paul just goes on listing all these things. We are his treasured possession. And this is the great great and wonderful news about sovereign grace. We have this astonishing security. But I wonder if you noticed the change in tone a little bit as we kept reading through chapter 7 in verses 9 to 11. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping the, his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Sounds good, right? Verse 10. But those who hate him, he will repay their face, uh, to their face by destruction. Now, that doesn't sound like unconditional love to me. What's going on here? Verse 7 and 8 seems like God's promises and blessings are unconditional. I love you because I love you. But in verses 10 and 11, God's promises and blessings seem conditional. Obey or face my judgment. I think there's actually a slide that, that puts these things in tension for us on the next slide. There we go. How do we reconcile this? Right? Are God's promises uh, and blessings conditional or unconditional? I mean, I've got a, you and I have a stake in this because we're not perfect. We don't keep all of his commandments. I haven't always loved the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and strength, let alone love my neighbour as myself. I haven't done those things. So uh, where do I sit here? Okay, here's the answer God's promises and God's blessings are both conditional and unconditional because they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's not until we get to the cross that we see how this tension is resolved. On the cross, Jesus faces destruction. He is forsaken. He is killed. He is destroyed. He faces the full wrath of God. Yet he actually fulfilled the covenant. So he's the only person who actually fulfills verse 11, but at the same time faces verse 10. In other words... Jesus is the only person who deserves the covenant blessings, yet faces the covenant curses. And what this means is, of course, Jesus has fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so we can have the blessings unconditionally. It's both conditional because Christ has fulfilled it and therefore unconditional to us as his people. Because if you take Jesus out of the picture, you're left with two options. You can kind of go with the liberal secularist viewpoint, which is, look, God loves you, you can do whatever you want." Right? Unconditional love, no law. Have fun. Or you can go for the religious, moralist worldview, which is, "Look, do the law, and then God will love you." But Christians, uh, Christians uh, --'ll try that again, Christians can say, "Look, I take God's law seriously because Jesus has died for me and fulfilled the conditions. I I can't make the law nothing. It's everything to me because Christ has fulfilled it. He's died for me. He's been raised to life for me. And therefore I know that I love to please and honor him, but when I fail, which I know I will, I know I'm loved anyway. Jesus fulfills the conditions of the covenant so we can have its blessings unconditionally that is the beauty of sovereign grace so let me leave you with these words again from 1 Peter 2 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation